You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Part of the desire in a place like Colorado is trying to thread the needle between how to protect consumers, but ensure that the legislation remains business friendly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben has an update on Apple's CSAM scanning plans. I've got details on Apple's plans to integrate your official state ID into Apple Wallet. And later in the show, my conversation with Aaron Tentliff. He's from Foley and Lardner's Privacy Security and Information Management Practice. We're going to be discussing how Colorado's privacy law differs from CCPA and how companies need to prepare. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's uh, kick things off here. Uh, you're going to start off. We, we got some uh, some big news from Apple, yes? We sure did, Dave. We did it. It was me and you. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. Official word from uh, Tim Cook uh, says that uh, as an avid listener of the Caveat podcast, uh, my opinion was changed, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thanks, Tim, for that shout out. We also need to give David Derajota some credit, too, because yeah. he was on our episode we did um, where we reviewed this program from Apple um, that would have allowed them to scan iPhones uh, for digital evidence of sexually exploitative material for minors. Right. And Apple has reversed that decision. It's not a full reversal. Um, They're doing the proverbial, we're taking a pause, taking time to review our policies. Um, So they're not canceling the program per se. But they are acknowledging that there was a significant backlash. A number of the provisions were not as controversial. Um, The one that allowed parents to opt into a program where they would be alerted if their own child uh, sent or received sexually exploitative material. I think, you know, that probably would have survived. But the provision where Apple was actually going into our devices and scanning our iCloud photos— um, for images that matched um, known child pornography uh, images on the internet, was even despite the noble intentions, something that really, um, you know, to use colorful language, pissed off the uh, <laughs> privacy and security community. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of lessons here. One is that activism works. Mm. Uh, Apple is susceptible to public opinion particularly among people who know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, I think these organizations, especially Apple, listen to groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation from Epic, some of these other online privacy groups. Right. Um, Because, you know, as we said in that episode that we recorded, 
they want to be the industry leader in privacy uh, and security. Yeah. Um, they pride themselves on that. So to get that kind of feedback, I, th- I think they, they take that very seriously. And I, unlike- I, think, I, think it is a, I think it is a good faith core value. I think it's more than just marketing and lip service. Absolutely. Yeah. And, we, and they, they practice what they preach in most circumstances. Right. Um, we talked about the San Bernardino case being the most high-profile one. Mm. I also will say the activist groups should be extremely proud of themselves. They sprung into action quickly. They went online and collected signatures. Uh, this this article that we're uh, using for our piece today, which we'll post in the show notes, comes from the New York Times. They note that the Electronic Frontier Foundation set up a online petition. It got twenty five thousand uh, signatures. Um, you know, these are the types of things that that can have an impact. I dare say have more of an impact in the private sector than it does in the public sector. Hmm. Because quite honestly, Apple is more directly responsible to its customers sometimes than policymakers are to their constituents. Hmm. It's easier for me to choose a different device or an encrypted application sometimes than it is for me to choose a new legislator. There's no alternative DMV. You can go get your driver's license. I sure wish there was, yeah. I'm going to go to the super hipster alternative DMV. Right, right, right. Yeah, some nice lighting in there. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, nice cafe, good coffee, all that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about I've seen folks um, s- sort of having the cynical response to this and saying uh, Apple's pause just means that Apple's going to bide their time and then you know quietly under cover of darkness in the middle of the night on a weekend, a holiday weekend. They'll just kick this into into place. It'll be the Friday news dump yeah. before like a <laughs> right. major yeah Christmas exactly. Eve. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think based on our experience over these past several weeks, they can't do that because the activist community is is on edge, mm-hmm. um, and they have their eyes on the issue now. Mm. Um, I think what Apple will have to contend with is there is a backlash on the other side here. Their advocacy groups you know, the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, similar groups like that, are not happy that Apple has walked back uh, this decision. So they do have to balance these interests. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think just because the privacy community has been up in arms, that doesn't mean that, you know, Apple necessarily is going to abandon this entirely because there is a large constituency, um, obviously, for curbing sexually exploitative material. Right. Right. Um, so, but yeah, I, I don't think they would able to be able to do this in um, the cover of night, given how plugged in the activist community is, how all these groups are keeping a watchful eye. I mean, mm-hmm. we saw how quickly groups sprung into action, I think, in a way that was clearly uh, unanticipated by the bigwigs at Apple. Yeah. Um, and, you know— us at Caveat, we do not do a single uh, episode on one topic very often. But when we decided <laughs> to do one on this, that should have been a signal that that this is serious. Serious, right? Yeah, yeah. I well, I mean, I, I you know, it's it's we have fun here, but it is a serious topic for yes. sure. Um, I wonder, could Apple come at this the way that most of the other tech companies do? Could they simply scan? people's iCloud photos on the server side, up in the cloud, the way that Google does, the way that Facebook does, the way that Dropbox does. This is a, I, I mean, it, it's it's a common practice from the other large providers of these sorts of services. If Apple simply f- fell back and said, you know, that's that, that'll work, you think they could go at it from that direction? 
I think that would be a better alternative to them than what they tried to do, which was to go directly on people's devices. Right. I still think it's more of a challenge for Apple than it is for other companies because of the position they hold in the market Mm -hmm. uh, as the holiest protector of your privacy rights. Mm -hmm. And given the backlash we saw here, you know, I think anything that Apple does is going to be met with a skeptical eye. You know, what's interesting uh, about the backlash is not only did Apple not anticipate it, but they kind of seemed to think that they were doing something that everybody was going to be proud of. Mm-hmm. They sent, um, you know, to media sources information on how the technology worked. You know, they uh, sent explainers to child safety groups and computer scientists. They really thought that this was going to be good PR for their company and that they were doing the right thing. Right. Um, so, you know, I could see something like that happening if they decided, like Google and some of these other countries to or companies to just uh, do the scans in the cloud. Yeah. Thinking, all right, everybody's going to like this. Uh, other companies do it. We're not going to face a backlash. But again, you're talking about, you know, it's like when uh, old Coke changed to new Coke. <laughs> now, Ben, I, I, I was that, alive when that happened. I don't think you, you certainly weren't. Uh, conscious, you, you weren't keeping track of these things when that happened. Now, I was in high school when I, that happened. I was not. I mean, <laughs> you remember that, though. It's not like, you know, no. it, if Tab changed their flavor, <laughs> right, right. no one would have batted an eye. But right. because it was Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think as, as we spoke about on, on our original episode, um, I think part of this was a little bit of hubris on Apple's part. You know, their... They have bet on the side of them knowing what's best for users time and time again, and it most of the time pays off. For right. Them, right? So you have that. Uh, I saw one uh, Apple uh, pundit who was saying that um, the fact that Apple didn't just go ahead and implement this, the fact that Apple announced it before implementation was a sign that Apple was open to criticism – I don't know that I buy that. No, I don't, I, don't, I don't buy that either, especially from what we just said about right. how they were sending out bragging press releases. I think, right. you know, there's always some lead time before you actually engage in a new program. I think it's natural to have that lead time. Right. I, it was going to roll out with a new version of the operating system. Right. Which, which is on a set cadence. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which uh, always, they insist it's going to download between 1 and 5 a.m., but... <laughs> I always wake up in the morning, and uh, even when it's plugged in, it says we weren't able to download the new iOS. So. <laughs> and that, Maybe they can fix that problem. Yeah, and, yeah, that horrible amount of time you have to sit there with no phone. It's Ugh, like uh, having it's like so your arm boring. Cut off. Yeah, oh, what are we gonna do? All right. Well, I, you know, interesting development for sure. Um, I, 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 I'm trying to think. Am, am I surprised that Apple uh, has? Caused this. I suppose in some ways I am because, again, Apple's corporate attitude is uh, we know what's best and you'll you'll come around, you know, <laughs> eventually. Right. Like we say, you know, you don't need that headphone jack. You'll come around, right? Yeah. Um, and they've withstood previous backlashes, which right. is what makes this interesting. I, yeah. I, I think perhaps they are – you know, tuning in more to what these privacy and advocacy groups are saying than they have in the past, realizing, you know, that that is such an important part of their market base. Right, right. All right, well, we will have a link to that New York Times uh, article that uh, really has a good overview of it. We'll have that in the show notes. Uh, My story this week also uh, has to do with Apple, uh, although a much lighter uh, topic. Uh, I'm using the coverage from uh, Daring Fireball, which is uh, John Gruber's 
uh, Mac News website. Um, he uh, provides a lot of uh, news and, and commentary on uh, all things Apple, and I think he has a good overview of this particular issue. Uh, his article is titled, Initial Details on Using Driver's Licenses and State IDs in Apple Wallet. Uh, and Apple recently uh, released a, a press release saying that they were working with several states, uh, Arizona, Georgia, Connecticut, Iowa, Kentucky, Maryland, Oklahoma, and Utah are among the first ones to work with Apple on making your state IDs accessible via your iPhone or Apple Watch with Apple's wallet technology. This, I think, is very interesting uh, we've talked before about the issue with uh, our IDs having barcodes on them yep. and being able to walk up to a bar, and, for example, and that bouncer scanning our driver's license and getting every bit of information on that driver's license. Right. And being able to share that information with the bar across town, mm-hmm. right, so that if I'm a problem customer at this bar. Which we know you are. Yeah. Yes, I am. I'm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, if I go to the bar across town, they will have been warned about me and will know not to let me in. Right. So that, that's a, a potential, uh, and not just a theoretical, that was a use case bars were actually doing. Right, um, right. I feel like we talked about this a long time ago. We did. Uh, yeah. We did. Uh, the problem is, uh, one of the problems is that I hand that, license over to the bouncer, and really the only piece of information that bouncer needs about me is, am I old enough to enter this place? Right. The bouncer does not need my home address. Or the fact that you're an organ donor. Right. Yeah. Or, God forbid, my weight. Yeah. (laughs) Although that's, you know, let's just say they always measure that in the past. So for most people, that's that's a lower number than the the current weight. Exactly. I recently got my driver's license renewed, and there was a moment when the the lovely lady who was uh, helping me, you know, fill out all the information, we kind of looked at each other for a moment when she asked, is is this weight up to date? (laughs) I sort of said... I haven't been that weight since, you know, 1995. Yeah, not to take more time on this, but when I I first got my driver's license when I was in high school, and I badly estimated my weight then, and then I had that same weight on my driver's license for about 10 years. It said I was 135 pounds, which if anybody's ever seen me, that's absolutely comical. Uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, what's interesting about this is that this technology in Apple Wallet will allow you to use this virtual ID. Um, and according to this, driver, uh, just a quote here from Apple's uh, uh, statement about this. It says, driver's licenses and state IDs in Wallet are only presented digitally through encrypted communication directly between the device and the identity reader, so users do not need to unlock, show, or hand over their device. And to me, that is a key... Absolutely. Point here because you never, ever, 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 ever <laughs> want to hand over your device to law enforcement or to anyone for that matter, but especially yeah. law enforcement. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, am I wrong to be a little bit excited that this is being rolled out in our home state of Maryland? Uh, I'm intrigued. I, I say I'm intrigued. Um, I, I think the. The obvious use case for this and probably the leading edge use case of this is going to be TSA at the airport. Right. TSA is going to accept this. 
So rather than having to pull out your driver's license, you'll be able to, you know, the same way. Scan your you, boarding pass. Yeah. Scan it, your license. And if you yeah. use, if you're familiar with using uh, Apple Pay or mm-hmm. if you're on an Android device, Google Pay, it's the same sort of thing. You just tap your device, bloop, it hands over your identification, presumably in this case. You are who you are. Yep. Your, right. And, and off you go. Uh, this seems great to me. Um, I don't think that this is really going to be a situation where you're going to be able to leave your driver's license at home because just in case. Right. <laughs> right. But I think it could streamline things. It could make things faster. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, and I think the security standards from what we've seen so far are robust enough that, you know, the any added convenience might you know, supersede whatever security concerns I might have. Right. Um, you know, they've talked about using a particular standard um, that Apple has developed for uh, the mobile's driver's li- mobile driver's license to ensure that, you know, it meets industry standards. To, it's going to be an open standard. It's an open standard. Yep. Um, yep. So, you know, if you're nerdy about that stuff, you can even uh, go and, and look at it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, something for, for us to be somewhat excited about. Now, I think policymakers in each of these states uh, are going to have to write into legislation or executive orders, you know, requiring that the digital license plates meet the most recent rigorous industry standards. I think that's going to be a requirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if they allow for mobile driver's license based on the current standards and some new, you know, potential security threats emerge, then you get into this period of stasis where hmm. nothing changes, you know, maybe information becomes more vulnerable. There's nothing in state legislation or coming out of the State Department of Information Technology requiring you to, uh, you know, adjust your security practices. That's where we could get in some danger. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, you know, I feel like bring it on. I already have my airline tickets and my, uh, you know, loyalty cards in my Apple wallet. And, you know, maybe uh, maybe I'll be adding my driver's license. What about the traffic stop situation here, right? Uh, to me, this is a potentially problem area for yes. this. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have pointed out you get pulled over for whatever, you know, you're speeding, you run a, run a stop sign, who knows. And the, the police officer says, uh, you know, I need your ID. License and registration, please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you, and you uh, now this presumes that the police officer is going to have something that can read this. Which in the short term is probably not a reasonable. Correct. Uh, yeah. Assumption. Correct. Uh, you certainly don't want to hand over your phone so that the police officer can take it back to their squad car. Yeah, please to scan don't do it, that. Even if it's locked. Right. Right. Uh, so does that really just make it not practical for that? You'd have to have, you know, this is another thing I think has to be written in legislation that adopts or or regulation that adopts a mobile driver's license where the customer still has possession of the device. Mm -hmm. They can scan it on a mobile scanner Mm -hmm. so that that device never gets into the hand of law enforcement. But law enforcement, once they've received the relevant information, can go back to the car, um, you know, I, that's. I feel like we're a very long time for from that being operational. I mean, for one thing, that would have to be adopted not only by state law enforcement agencies but local law enforcement. Right. 
Um, and so, you know, I wouldn't go driving around without your driver's license, yeah. physical I, driver's license anytime soon. I wonder too, to what degree is the user going to have control over what information is shared? For example, am I able to dial it in if I go to the bar right. and I don't want everything shared? Am I in control of that? Or are they going to have some sort of standard where if you're a bar, you only are entitled to this information? I would much rather have that be under my control than the bars. Right. And it seems like from what this article is saying is that the bar or the TSA, they're going to be the ones determining what information they want. Hmm. Um, You know, maybe that's something else that we could put into legislation or regulation where you know, we require organizations who are scanning these mobile driver's license to only collect the information they need to collect for mm. their practical business purposes. Mm. So for a bar, it's it's your age. Um, you know, for the TSA, it's probably going to be most of what's on your, your driver's license. So yeah. they can be sure that it's you. Right. Probably don't need your address. Um, but, you know. Who knows? Yeah, a lot of uh, what else is on there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it would be good to give the user that option of what to share. Hmm. It still gives the, um, you know, the TSA or law enforcement or the bar some power because they could say, all right, well, you're not getting into this bar unless, you know, I see more information than just your age. I, right. I, I want to make sure your name's on there too. I want, you know, you to use some biometric something or other to ensure that you're not your older brother. Right, right, um, right, right. It's getting hard. The The days of the McLovin fake ID are, yeah. are getting harder, harder and harder to pull off, right? Yes. You're a 25-year-old from Hawaii. <laughs> I am McLovin. Yes, I am. Yes, yes, I am. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that is my story this week. We will have a link to that. Uh, again uh, from uh, John Gruber over at uh, Daring Fireball. I think he has a good summary and analysis of it, so we will have a link to that. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Aaron Tentleff. He is from Foley and Lardner's Privacy Security and Information Management Practice. And our conversation centers on Colorado's privacy laws and the ways that it differs from CCPA and how companies need to prepare. Here's my conversation with Aaron Tantliff. I would say the reason why I probably don't have the best answer in terms of what, you know, in terms of, you know, why it happened. There's a desire for a number of states, not just Colorado, but for a number of states to pass some type of comprehensive privacy legislation. Obviously, California was the first and then Virginia. Other states are looking at it. 
but there seems to be a divide or a discussion amongst whether or not, for example, there will be a federal piece of legislation and whether that federal legislation will have state preemption or not, uh, what that would mean for the states, but also how doing business within the states was impacted by, you know, by this growing ability to use personal data. We're seeing, you know, there are states adopting it, various countries who have adopted it, and it impacts businesses. And there's also the desire to protect the residents of the state. There's certainly a growing voice amongst consumers, you know, and, and I guess you would call it constituents, who are clamoring for more comprehensive protection of their personal information as well as the concern about how private businesses and even how governments are utilizing their personal information for uh, their personal gain at the detriment of the individuals or even even at the ability to, let's say, make people uncomfortable. Hmm. And so the desire to create legislation is one of those things. And I think part of the desire in a place like Colorado, and you can see it in how they design the legislation is trying to find, or as they would say, thread the needle between how to protect consumers, but ensure that the legislation remains business friendly. We want, you know, they want to make sure that in a place like Colorado, which is, you know, is certainly attracting business, there's a lot of growth there. But at the same time, what we see is privacy legislation, amongst other types of legislation, so not just privacy, but certainly this is one of them, that has the ability to, let's say, strike fear into the hearts and minds of companies who are trying to do business in the state or try to direct business towards or market to the residents of those states. And in a place like Colorado, with a growing business community, is to ensure that it remains protective of their constituents and the residents and protects business. In fact, when passing the legislation, the governor, in an issued statement uh, that he had made to the to the General Assembly, I think he said in the haste to pass this legislation or to pass the bill, he was concerned that there were still a number of issues, even outstanding as of then, but realized that they needed to get the legislation out there. But part of what you know they're trying to do and he's urging the General Assembly to take a look at, to ensure that they continue to strike an appropriate balance between the consumer protection, uh, while not stifling the innovation and Colorado's position as a top state to do business in. But the point there was, as I took away from that, when I was thinking about why this legislation has certain exemptions in it, or where it's different from California and Virginia and others that are pending, is I think because of that focus to ensuring it remains a business-friendly state. So while I think a lot of other privacy legislation in itself truly focused on people, truly focused on protecting personal data, you didn't see any overt acts of deference towards business. But surprisingly enough, though, there are a few tweaks in here that seem to be at odds with that statement. And I wonder if they're the type of thing that would be primed for targeting. So for example... Before I run away with this whole thing, I'll let you ask some <laughs> questions. Uh, but one of them was, which was fascinating, is underneath the CPA, there's no revenue threshold, right? So just like 
you know, with California and just like with Virginia, when it seeks to target businesses, you know, Colorado makes it clear that it intentionally applies to businesses that intentionally target Colorado consumers and collect or store data on at least 100,000 consumers or earn revenue from selling data of at least 25,000 consumers. So initially that number's higher than the CCPA, but when you look at the new CPRA and Virginia's CDPA, then that, that number is consistent. So whatever it is, for whatever reason, 100,000 is sort of the number that's consistent across the states, and that's fine. If you control or process the personal data of at least 25,000 Colorado consumers per year, and you derive revenue or receive a discount on pricing of goods or services, et cetera, on the sale of personal data, you can be subject to the CPA. However, unlike the CCPA or the Virginia CDPA, there is no percentage threshold or any type of revenue or discount uh, that's received from the sale of personal data uh, may be sufficient. And even if you're talking a de minimis amount of money. So on one hand, this becomes an interesting anecdote about how the CPA ensuring that Colorado remains a top state to do business in because this likely could result in a significant amount of litigation. Because if you think about how difficult it would be to show that there isn't some type of consideration associated with that sale of personal data. The other aspect of that, the lack of the revenue threshold. The idea here, if you think about in the other states, California, et cetera, so it's a company who's got, who may have a high revenue stream, right? But they're not in the business of processing personal data. So under CPA, they would still likely be considered, they would still likely fall under this legislation. So, you know, where you think about like California's CPA or CPRA, you know that it's specifically trying to target those types of businesses. Under Virginia, it targets pretty much every business or almost every business. Obviously, there's certain certain still thresholds that you have to hit. But it becomes very difficult not to hit those thresholds based upon their definitions. Now, when you're advising your clients, uh, the folks that you work with, are there any particular areas that you're warning them to look out for? Or are there any uh, you know pitfalls or, or prickly parts of this that, that need attention? Well, so actually the first one is is sort of let's take that actually back a step. So the legislation goes into effect July 1st, 2023. And there's the discussion with the Colorado AG's office and may adopt rules between now and you know before January 1st, 2025. The first question is that clients are saying, well, 2023 is a long time away. July 1st, 2023 is a long time away, and there could be amendments out there. There's a lot of discussion as to whether or not something is going to be effective or not. So we first eliminate things that would be that they would be subject to regardless of Colorado's cha- of any change because we know they would be subject to something very similar under GDPR, under CCPA, under CDPA, and, and others that are coming into effect. Again, unique things under CPA. And the question becomes, do we start working on compliance now or do we wait to see what amendments have been passed? And quite frankly, some companies you know, have already decided we scrambled when GDPR came around. We scrambled when CCPA came around. You know, we scrambled, you know, if, if we're subject to HIPAA, whatever it may have been. So everyone had different points in their career or in their times of when they scrambled. So 
scrambling is becoming, I hate to say it, somewhat of a method of doing business when it comes to privacy in mm-hmm. some of these states. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so that that's one aspect of themselves is that you know we've already implemented for GDPR, we've already started our CCPA, and now we're looking at doing CPRA and CDPA. Do we need to specifically add in Colorado? And while there are some differences, you know, some companies are saying we're almost there. We don't yet know what these amendments are going to be. We don't know how it's going to impact it. It's still some time away. We believe that what we have left to do may not be as difficult as it once seemed, or maybe we're already given more rights. But the flip side is actually, as we're getting some clients who are saying, I was exempt under CCPA, I'm exempt under Virginia, under, under, under CDPA, but it appears as though I may not be exempt under CPA. Hmm. So question one is, what do we think? Do we think that there's going to be an amendment that's going to move them outside of it again? Or will they have to start worrying about it? Under CPA, though, there are some things that I do believe businesses have, I don't want to say concerned about, but have, you know, what I do think will have additional obligations that they haven't had so far that will have an impact on how they utilize business or how they document and move forward. So I think there's been some different views on, on transparency as to, as to what companies are required to provide to, uh, to individuals with respect to their data. Hmm. And companies have been asking, how are they supposed to document everything that's being required under CPA? And how do they share that with them? And there's certainly technological solutions that will enable that to be easily addressed in theory, assuming people get comfortable with how do you disclose everything that's there? Because part of it is, you know, there's a discussion as to whether or not some of these issues of transparency as to how you use it could even either trade secret or, or some other type of proprietary information on the companies to who they share information with, how they share it. And the question is, is there a way to share this information without disclosing you know, who some of our partners may be or how we process this data to, to derive certain information um, or who do we partner with? And so that's something that I know we've been in discussions with with some companies as to their level of comfort as to how much information has to be disclosed. Another one where I do know that we're we're seeing a lot of interest in terms of companies trying to understand what does it mean, we've, which we've already seen before, this idea of you know secondary use under the CCPA and C and, and CPRA as well as the CDPA, you know, harkens to you know sort of like the GDPR is the duty to avoid secondary use of, of data. So companies that have complied with or are working on their compliance with CCPA, CPRA, CDPA have been asking about this issue because it's one of those where it's new to those businesses that are operating, at least you know, certainly domestically. The other aspect about it is it doesn't comport with, again, a governor's statement about we want to make sure we're, we're ensure that we don't stifle innovation and business in Colorado. So in, in the legislation, there's a prohibition on companies who are, you know, to use data for any purpose that's not reasonably necessary or compatible with the specified purposes for which personal data are processed. 
you know, while the legislation, you know, certainly makes it easy that you can override this by seeking new consent, that doesn't necessarily alleviate the issue because one, a business needs to now make sure it flags the data as to how it's, you know, what the consent was for, you know, how that data was originally processed. There used to be, if you remember years ago, privacy policies that said we can use your data for A, B, and C, and for any other purpose we so choose, you know, mm. you know, now or in the future. We don't see that anymore in privacy policies. That's pretty much because the FTC has its own position on, you know, post-collection data practices that your use of the data must be consistent with the nature in which you collected it. The CPA, I think, goes beyond that because the CPA takes the position that it can only be used for the specified purposes. And they talk about the express consent requirement for new uses. While the FTC, you know, does identify that, you know, your purpose of your post-data collection use, you know, consistent with pre-collection use, it's not as narrow as what the CPA has done. So for a lot of businesses, this restriction will be significant for a lot of businesses because there is the tendency, whether intentionally or otherwise, for businesses to you know, utilize the data they've collected for a variety of purposes, generally aligning with what's stated. But it's not unrealistic to either think about or see companies moving that line out a little bit further or, you know, utilizing it for other purposes within the company that may not be, you know, they may be related, right? They may be whether directly on point or or tangentially related. But I believe in a lot of uses that I've seen companies do, uh, and things that we've written opinions about as to whether or not this would likely be permitted, you know, and, and we've, you know, we've discussed, you know, with clients both, you know, you know, uses that are permissible and ones we don't think they should consider without seeking express consent or disclosing that. I think this language under the CPA takes it much further, and as a result of that, I think it's going to require companies to put a lot more scrutiny into those specified purposes, you know, as per the CPA, as to what they're disclosing and getting consent for, as well as what they need to follow up and get consent for. Because it's not practical to think that a compliant policy going forward, or for some time, would allow you to have a vague or generic sort of forward-thinking statement encompassing new uses that are not yet uh, employed by a company or contemplated. Ben, what do you think? A couple of interesting elements to me of the conversation. One is that Colorado is trying to fashion itself as a good place to do business. Mm-hmm. Uh, as your interviewee said, it's it's a state that's had a lot of growth recently. So they're really trying to thread that needle, as he said, between trying to protect user privacy while also you know, not making Colorado a difficult state to do business with. Right, right. Uh, and the other thing that stuck out to me is this question of the income thresholds. You know, I think that's a gap because you don't want these privacy laws to apply to mom and pop shops mm-hmm. um, who aren't going to be able to pay the compliance costs. Right. So I think that's something that California has done well. You know, it's 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 not an easy question to answer because sometimes 
you know, net revenue or whatever is is hard to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I thought that was another really interesting element of uh, the interview. Yeah, it reminds me like there are some things with um, federal laws with uh, having to comply with uh, disability right. you know, guidelines where your company has to have a certain number of people yep. before they're, uh, you know, before you have to have everything be wheelchair accessible, for example, you know, things like that. Yeah, and which, it has some downstream effects because, you know, then a company might, if a bunch of new regulations go into place when you hit your 50th person, mm-hmm. the company might try and limit its, its employees to 49. I mean, it has effects on the margins for sure. Right, right. All right. Well, our thanks to Aaron Tentleff for joining us. Again, he is from Foley and Lardner's Privacy Security and Information Management Practice. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>